Welcome to the Provcast, the regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. I'm managing editor Drew Griffin. My guest today is Eric Farnsworth. He is the vice president of the Council of Americas in Washington, D.C., an expert in Latin American relations, a frequent expert witness before the House and Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and most recently an author of an article in the Americas Quarterly entitled Why Washington is Worried and What Should It Do?, which addresses uh, China's economic and political entry into the Western Hemisphere and into Latin America. Eric, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Drew. It's good to be back with you. So we've had you on uh, previously to talk about the other kind of uh, main uh, hot topic in Latin America right now, which is uh, Venezuela. Yeah. And uh, as, as much as it would be um, you know, interesting to delve deeply into that, I want to talk about a not totally unrelated topic and one that you write about in the America's Quarterly um, uh, that was just recently released about uh, the Chinese involvement in Latin America broadly. And, uh, you know, if we look at the, the topic of China in the global space, uh, there are no shortage of fronts uh, on which we could uh, delve into. There's the idea of their human rights abuses, uh, the Uyghur detention camps in Shenzhen, the uh, Belt and Road Initiative, their push out in the South China Sea, the push down in uh, Hong Kong of, of recent protests there. I mean, China gets a lot of uh, news coverage, a lot of podcast minutes. Uh, but what seems to be missing in a lot of coverage and it seems to be happening kind of uh, surreptitiously on the world stage is their intense uh, involvement and investment in Latin America. And so you write about this, and I think it's it would be interesting for our readers to kind of get a global picture of, of, what, of what China is doing and a complete picture of what they're doing in their investment in Latin America. So uh, talk to us a little bit about how we got into this space, right? How uh, uh, China is, is getting involved and increasing involved in Latin America and how that involvement manifests itself. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I've written in the piece and elsewhere that, uh, in my view, the entrance of China into Latin America has been the most dramatic shift in hemispheric politics this century. Now, there are other things that have happened in terms of populism and commodities trade and, uh, you know, Venezuela, as you've already referenced. But from the perspective of long-term implications and geopolitical shift, uh, China's entrance has been, in my view, the most significant. And it really started uh, in the beginning uh, of the century with some visits of uh, Chinese leadership to Latin America, and it was portrayed, and indeed it was at the beginning, as primarily a trade and investment relationship um, designed to help both uh, China and the region begin to understand each other better, uh, trade, invest. China had a lot of, and still does, has a lot of uh, excess capital that it needed to invest uh, overseas. Uh, and it also had a lot of need for inputs from uh, developing markets globally, per, for example, uh, commodities, uh, oil and gas and iron ore and, uh, you know, agriculture, foodstuffs, uh, to, um, to develop its own economy. Uh, to the point where China has now become the top trade partner in the world of Brazil, the top trade partner of Chile, the top trade partner of Peru, you go down the line, the second top trade partner of Argentina, the second of Colombia, etc. So from a standing start, literally, China has now become, to some economies in the region, their top trade partner. That's a dramatic shift. Now, as I mentioned, it started off as primarily trade and economics, uh, and um, that's on which the relationship has been built. But uh, as we've seen the century go uh, longer uh, over the 
past uh, 20 years or so, we've also seen that China has a broader um, interest in the region, as it does in other developing markets, that goes beyond trade and economics, that goes to things like um, uh, building uh, political uh, relationships with countries, uh, whether through uh, economic leverage or through uh, other political means. Uh, it goes to uh, the ability to try to gain regional allies for Chinese priorities and strategic initiatives. Uh, you've already mentioned the Uyghurs, uh, Taiwan, Tibet, South China Sea, uh, some support for Chinese uh, issues there. But it also goes to the heart of what the United States States has been fighting uh, in, and the Western world has been fighting for years, and that is the idea of ideological supremacy. Now, before we say that this is a new Cold War, which it's not at this point, uh, nonetheless, we can see that what the Chinese are trying to do uh, in Latin America and the rest of the developing world is to create conditions whereby people uh, will begin to see the Chinese model as equivalent to uh, the Western model, and they're doing that through a number of means, which we can which we can get into. But to me, what this says is that there is a real battle of ideas underway right now in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, and the United States uh, may not be fully aware of what's, what's really happening, and we need to engage at that level. It's not just trade and, and economics and investment. That is part of it. It's not just um, education and exchange. That's part of it. But it's also a battle of ideas, and I think we have to engage at that level. So what's interesting about the you know, United States involvement in Latin America, I mean, obviously it's one of the, the longest standing international uh, you know, engagements and partnerships that we've had since we've become a nation is uh, with Latin America, Latin American nations, and, and the development of um, uh, Latin America as a whole. I mean, the United States has uh, undergone no short amount of criticism uh, in the 20th century of, uh, you know, our very kind of heavy-handed involvement, uh, and, and there's... Movies and stories and books written about you know <clears throat> dictators toppled and and uh, you know regimes propped up and and you've got Iran Contra you've got all the number of of involvement in the late 20th century in, in Latin America and then what do you see a, a shift around the turn of the century? in uh, the American mentality towards Latin America that would then, you know, maybe open up and, and create an opening for Chinese involvement. And and you see that um, shift continuing or, or adjusting some with uh, the Trump administration, which has, we've seen under the Trump administration, at least declarations, if it hasn't actually happened already, of the intention to um, cease a lot of foreign aid to countries in order to pry, apply leverage and pressure uh, to reduce um uh, migration to get countries to enforce uh, their own kind of like immigration policies. Um, describe a little bit about the, the evolving uh, U.S. government mentality towards Latin America that maybe is creating uh, an opening for uh, Chinese involvement. These are really important questions, and I'm glad you're raising them. The, um, uh, the, the short answer is some of the criticism that, the, that is directed at the United States for our activities in the Western Hemisphere is well-deserved. Uh, some of it's not. Um, but uh, much of the overstep, if you want to put it that way, that the U.S. has uh, had in the region over the years was due uh, to uh, the worldview that we had, particularly during the Cold War, where we saw Latin America as well as other parts of the world as essentially a battle, an ideological battleground with the Soviet Union in the context of a global competition 
of ideas, and it caused us to do some things that probably, in retrospect, we regret. Um, and uh, the United States has taken uh, taken criticism for those activities. But those that worldview fundamentally shifted when the Cold War ended. And so we saw, for example, in the early 1990s, when I was just starting out at the State Department, for example, in Washington, um, we saw a shift from uh, seeing Latin America as derivative, in other words, seeing it as important because of uh, it was uh, a, 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 a competition zone for the US and Soviet Union as to be important in and of itself. And so our focus uh, changed um, to things like development and things like trade. And we started uh, doing uh, the, the North America Free Trade Agreement and free trade agreements with Central America, with the Andean countries. Uh, with Chile, et cetera, and, and it became more of a partnership for economic development. Yes, it was in the interests of the United States, uh, but we also believed, uh, and I still believe, that it was in the interests of the region as well. Uh, and so you heard a lot of things like shared values and, and, and common interests, uh, rhetoric about partnership, rhetoric about doing things together, uh, and, you know, that wasn't always perfectly implemented, but certainly that was the uh, impulse of much of the United States uh, government at that time. Uh, but what we have seen, I think you're exactly right, uh, over the last couple of years, and it has been a political shift, but I don't know that it's um, strictly the, um, the uh, result of the Trump administration, although I think the Trump administration has accelerated uh, the trends that perhaps were already in place. A shift of uh, the U.S. public being unwilling, perhaps, uh, to pay the costs of global leadership that we were willing to pay and thought we needed to pay during the Cold War and the immediate aftermath. And so the public goods, the international public goods that we were willing to underwrite uh, were not anymore. And so um, things like free trade agreements, which I was trained as, a, as an economist, and the idea that uh, trade agreements or, or open trade is good for all parties, I think I believe in, but this idea that if you have a trade deficit now with a certain country, it means we're somehow losing uh, in the trade battle, and therefore we have to tear up trade agreements and renegotiate them. Uh, that's simply a mercantilist idea that was discredited in the you know 17 and 1800s. Um, but it's what we have gone back to now, and so we're looking at a more transactional relationship. And I hasten to say, this isn't just a Latin America thing. This is how the U.S. seems to be dealing with. Uh, many or most countries around the world at this point, uh, which is to say, you know, we will provide benefits to you based on what you are doing for us. I'm not sure that's how a great power really should be operating, certainly in the, in the current environment, in particular because, and here's, here's the, the implication, and it goes to the heart of your question, I think, Drew, um, the question being, you know, what does that mean in terms of China's ability to operate in the hemisphere? I think it opens the door wide because countries in the region that used to rely on the United States and saw us as the legitimate only partner, essentially, for their own aspirations and development, now say, well, we don't know if the U.S. is a reliable partner. And by the way, here's a country over here. Uh, they may uh, have a different language than us. They may have a different history, but they come to us with a whole lot of money. They don't ask a lot in return. And, you know, by the way, our traditional partners are treating us uh, with, uh, with disdain in some uh, in some. 
way. So look, put yourself in their shoes. What choice would you make? And I think that's what the choice is facing a lot of folks in Latin America. And that's what uh, that's the challenge that we face right now uh, from the from the U.S. perspective. So there seems to be uh, some similarity in my mind between um, if you look at the continent of Africa and you look at Latin America, both uh, Central and, and South America, you know, th- there's a, a, a prevalence due to a whole host of factors, uh, post-colonialism um, and uh, maybe, you know, um, uh, uh, desperate economic environments. There's, there's a prevalence towards Marxism, a prevalence towards socialism, a prevalence towards, uh, you know, communism that oftentimes, I think, uh, in Latin America, you know, um, we've been fighting against with them, I think, with some uh, measure of success. Um, but if you take the case of Venezuela, a country that, uh, you know, initially has this uh, revolution led by Hugo Chavez and who, who signs and says this is going to be, a, you know, a democratic um, a government like all, all, of the, all of the rest, you know, quickly shifts into this uh, kind of uh, socialist um, kind of totalitarian, I guess, regime um, that is now a failed state. Uh, of the $150 billion, I think it's estimated that China has invested in Latin America, about $62 billion of that is going to or has gone to Venezuela since maybe 2005. Uh, so they're, they're hugely involved in Venezuela. I mean, in terms of the, the battle for people's hearts and minds, when you've got uh, a region that is, is struggling, a region that is, is weak politically, that's looking for capital and looking for investment, and here comes a, this massive global superpower saying, here's all the money you could ever want. And oh, by the way, we found a way to make socialism and communism sort of work for us. I don't know. I mean, is that a, a threat that the U.S. Uh, should take seriously? Is that something? Or is, or is it more just like I think many people make the argument with the Belt Road Initiative and, and other things that China is doing, that it's, this is just economics. Look, it's just investment. It's just neutral. It's benign. It's, you know, we give money, they give money. Um, uh, what's the difference? You know, it goes well beyond trade and economics, as we've discussed, and so I think you're exactly right about that. You know, I don't think – well, let me put it differently. It it seems that China is interested in promoting its interests in the Western Hemisphere, not necessarily uh, communism or socialism or a certain um, kind of government. And what I mean by that is if you look at where China is most directly and uh, deeply engaged, and I'm going to come back to Venezuela in a second, but uh, over the entire hemisphere, you see that they're engaged in the countries uh, where, frankly, the United States and, and most uh, capitalist societies are engaged. The largest economies, the ones with the most to offer, Brazil, Argentina, Mexico is a little bit of a different story in the China context, but you know these are countries that draw investor interest because there's a lot going on there. It's the same is true with China. If we thought that China was trying to simply promote a certain ideology, we would anticipate that they would be most deeply engaged with countries like Cuba, with countries like Nicaragua, with countries like Bolivia, and and they are involved in those countries, but in orders of magnitude less, uh, at least from economic perspective, than they are with other countries. Venezuela is, I think, different, but I think China's fundamentally misplayed Venezuela. I don't think that they supported Hugo Chavez and Nicolas Maduro because they are uh, great revolutionaries and Bolivarians and want to remake the world in the Bolivarian context, whatever that even means in terms of socialism for the 21st century. I think China is interested in Venezuela because Venezuela maintains the world's largest proven reserves of oil, and it frankly doesn't matter what type of government they have. 
uh, above ground. What China's interested in, in, in is what's below ground in Venezuela. And so that's why they got so deeply invested uh, in the country, and it's why they have put uh, so much stock in the government of Venezuela from a stability perspective. It's not that they, and I've talked to a number of Chinese folks about this, Chinese government officials and others, it's not that they love Nicolas Maduro. I mean, look, he's a desperate, and, and more than 10% of his own country is already outside Venezuela as refugees. This is a failing state, as you've said. This is a disaster. Um, and, and China has no particular interest in Mr. Maduro's continuation, but if they have stability in the country and if they have uh, the ability to have their, their loans repaid uh, in oil, then that's a strategic win for China. What I would maintain, however, is that they've, the Chinese have misunderstood uh, Venezuela, but also Latin America, because China wants to be a long-term player now in Latin America. They don't want to be just transactional. They don't want to just go in for a couple of years and then do something else. They want to be there for the long term. And in order to be in anywhere in the long term, you have to develop goodwill. You have to develop positive relationships with, uh, with the neighbors. Uh, and the fact of the matter is China right now is enabling the worst humanitarian crisis that the Western Hemisphere has seen in the modern era, bar none. And the neighbors know that. Look, I mean, where do you think those refugees from Venezuela go? They go to Colombia. They go to Brazil. They go to Peru. They go to Chile, um, you know, throughout the region, Ecuador, certainly. And to the extent China is being seen as enabling that crisis, the countries of the region um, say, well, you know, these guys aren't good actors. They don't have my interests at heart. They're creating catastrophe in my country, and they need to, you know, change their ways. I think there's also, though, even more um, a specific reason why China has misplayed this, and it's very simple, and it's very, uh, very straightforward. If China wants to have their loans repaid, which I maintain that they do, the best chance of getting those loans repaid is under a stable, democratically elected, legitimate government, which has the authority to pay those loans. Um, and, and the Maduro government at this point clearly doesn't. Uh, it's struggling. It's not able to, uh, to develop the type of uh, money that's required to pay back all of its creditors. Uh, and so uh, oil production has to be increased. The country needs to be put on a recovery footing. And that's not going to happen until uh, the democratic path is restored to Venezuela, or at least until Mr. Maduro leaves. So you can make the argument, as I have and would continue to do so, that China's strategic interest in Venezuela is, frankly, to have a successor government in place to Mr. Maduro that's democratic and legitimate in the eyes of the international community, and it's under those circumstances that they have the best chance of getting their loans repaid. So you bring up Venezuela and you bring up kind of uh, Chinese uh, interests in, in Venezuela and to the extent to which they are competing against, you know, American interests. Um, let's look at um, kind of what fascinates me about Venezuela, and, and we've talked about this, I think, in the previous podcast where we had you on, where we delved kind of deeply into the topic, is that it's, it, is a, it is the, to me, uh, you know, Syria of the Western Hemisphere, right? It's this failed state that is uh, broken down, that's also a giant proxy battlefield for the, for the Russians, uh, for the United States, now for China. And each one of these groups has uh, competing interests. And while, you know, uh, China and Russia may be aligned on a number of different things, what talk a little bit about how the uh, you know to the extent to which you can the, the competing interests of these great world powers are playing out in Venezuela to the detriment of maybe the Venezuelan people to the benefit of uh, Hugo Chavez uh, to the frustration of Juan Guaido I mean talk a little bit about um, how these interests are playing off one another are there alignments you know like we can see with Russia and um, 
uh, Venezuela and, and Cuba. There's obviously a, a wedding there uh, to um, uh, prop up Maduro, but then there's Chinese frustration, as you said, with Maduro and that he can't deliver. So talk a little bit about how those um, big players are beginning to rub up against one another. Well, you're exactly right. The people who are getting most negatively impacted by all of this are the Venezuelan people themselves. And I think it bears repeating there are over 4 million Venezuelans outside the country right now of a total population of 33 million. So it's over 10 percent. And the number's predicted to go up, It right, goes up year, every right? day. Yeah. And there are estimates that, uh, in fact, by the end of this calendar year, it'll be over 5 million Venezuelans outside the country. So that's another million uh, between now and December 31st. And of course, the question has to be asked, where are they going to go? Well, they're going to go to Colombia and Brazil and other countries. So that will increasingly, um, you know, it won't politically destabilize, but it could uh, create economic uh, challenges, certainly, for those countries and social uh, difficulties and all that. So there are some, some real problems going on there. We've talked a lot about China's interest in Venezuela. I, I think it is primarily economic, although they do have, uh, in terms of their own uh, ability to get repaid, but I think they do have also um, a vision of working with the Maduro government to uh, do things like sell um, population uh, control equipment, which they have done. It's hard currency, but it's also, frankly, experimentation. You know what works in Latin America? The Uyghur uh, example in China is somehow being exported, uh, which we could go into, but suffice it to say that the Venezuelan people are not free at this point. Uh, their, their government uh, exercises a heavy hand of control. Uh, and you can either, you know, knuckle under or you can leave the country. That's essentially the, the option that Venezuelans have at this point. Point, which is tragic, but it's it's the reality, and it's getting worse. And much of that's being enabled by China because of their own techniques in terms of population control, but also the technology that they've made available now to to uh, the Maduro regime. You know, I, I think Russia is a little bit different in the context of Venezuela. Russia is also interested in oil. They've gotten sweetheart deals from the government, um, which is you know on economic terms outrageous. I mean, it's simply a, a buy off of the of the Russians. The Russians have sold hard uh, have have sold equipment to get hard currency military equipment, that sort of thing. But I think the Russians also have a, a broader perspective in terms of a strategic interest in Venezuela. I don't think they want to uh, take over the country or colonize it or anything like that. But to the extent they can raise the costs to the United States of uh, having a failed uh, you know, state in their own uh, you know, region uh, and a country that is uh, creating a lot of uh, disturbance in, in the region but also causing a lot of concern in Washington to occupy Washington policymakers, to project Russian power into the Western Hemisphere, to create instability. I mean, that's a strategic win for Russia. So I think they've got a broader perspective. I mean, you could, you could encapsulate that by saying it's a poke in the eye to the United States. That's too simplistic, but I think if you think about it in that way, you see the difference between Russia and China, uh, at least in the Venezuelan context. And then Cuba has its own um, interests in Venezuela, which uh, literally go to the heart of the survival of the Cuban regime. Uh, and so this is a fundamental issue for the Cubans. Um, when Fidel Castro was alive, he had really two pet causes. One was Puerto Rico, the independence of Puerto Rico, and the second was revolution in Venezuela. Uh, he didn't uh, achieve the first, but he did achieve the second. And the reason why, again, it revolves around oil. Uh, Cuba doesn't have uh, oil to speak of uh, and uh, has been on the Venezuelan dole uh, for years in terms of taking, I mean, the estimates vary because it's tough to get a fix on what exactly they're getting, but at least 40 to 50,000 barrels per day of Venezuela crude that's just being given away. Now, as a foreign policy or a foreign assistance, uh, you know, project from Venezuela to 
to Cuba, that probably is, you know, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it, it is what it is. But when you think about it in the context of there are people literally starving in Venezuela and the regime is giving away its only source of hard currency to Cuba for ideological reasons instead of selling it on the open market and using that money to buy food for its own people, you recognize the moral bankruptcy of the Venezuelan regime. Uh, much of that's facilitated by Cuba because Cuba has advisors in place. Cuba has advised on tactics. Cuba has literally senior military officials around the president of Venezuela. Cuba shares intelligence activities. Uh, and, uh, and so you get a situation where Venezuela has in some ways actually been colonized by Cuba. It's a perverse situation, but it shows why Cuba is so desperate to hold on to uh, the Maduro government because their own survival, the survival of the uh, of the Diaz-Canal regime in Cuba in some ways depends on that continued uh, largesse from the Venezuelan people, whether the Venezuelan people want to be giving it or not. Well, I think that uh, Cuba is, is getting oil, you know, uh, for free, but they're also providing uh, Maduro basically with his own private, you know, well, that's, intelligence that's force. Exactly so, I mean, right. so they're getting compensated, I guess, uh, I guess for that. Well, that's um, how they put it. They put it in terms of, you know, we're giving doctors and, you know, right. all these things and they're giving us oil in return. But that's preposterous. Doctors being a loose term uh, well, for it, <laughs> covert intelligence uh, agents and thugs, in right? In part, yeah, and in part. And sure, there are some medical professionals who provide, you know, uh, medical services, and Venezuela does need that. But uh, no, this is not a, an altruistic uh, offer of support. This is clearly uh, something that Cuba has uh, pursued uh, in order for its own self-interest. Yeah, I'm not sure altruism exists in foreign <laughs> policy. I, I, I haven't found it anywhere. One of the interesting things you said, uh, kind of before we go to a break, that I want to uh, kind of bring up and uh, point out is, you know, we talked a little bit about the um, kind of indifference that China may have, depending on whatever kind of government uh, is, exists, they're just looking for trading partners. The funny thing is, though, is that a lot of times what they're trading, uh, especially if it is like um, this intelligence technology and kind of artificial intelligence and, and kind of population control, there are only certain governments that would be interested in that, right? I mean, there are only certain uh, regimes, only certain types of government and forms of government that would be um, uh, practical consumers for that. So it seems like that there is you know, they may not care what type of totalitarian regime or what type of like corrupt uh, regime that doesn't have an interest in its uh, the health of its own people exists. But there, there does seem to be um, a an added benefit to them to see regimes like Maduro's and like uh, Venezuela's that is corrupt, that is um, uh, eager to buy that type of um, uh, material, that, uh, that, that there still is an impetus on them, that, that a free and democratic uh, Venezuela that has uh, you know, a valid constitution and the rule of law would not be uh, a good consumer for some of these Chinese products. You right? might actually be surprised in terms of the number of countries that are purchasing intelligence-related and dual-use equipment. I mean, countries like Venezuela uh, or Cuba or perhaps Bolivia or some of these countries, Nicaragua certainly may be more inclined to use it in terms of, uh, you know, population control and that sort of thing. But the technology exists and it's being widely deployed throughout 
Latin America and other countries as well, um, you know, for security purposes, for purposes of, uh, you know, things we would think are completely legitimate. But here's the problem. Look, I mean, it might be that China's only selling, you know, um, certain things to Venezuela, but what happens if a country like Brazil implements the uh, Huawei 5G? Right? Huawei is completely dual use. And so, you know, you've basically introduced the Chinese intelligence services into your entire communications backbone uh, into your country if you do that. Now, if you're the Brazilians, for example, I, you know, I'm just picking a country out of the air. It could be any country, right? But if you're country X, let's put it that way, that buys this uh, system or, you know, implements these, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, the technological uh, capabilities, um, what you have done is introduced into your country a backdoor for China to essentially watch what you are doing throughout the entire uh, government infrastructure. That may not be your intent. It may not be your desire to use that against your own citizens. And it may, if you have rule of law and independent judiciaries and checks and balances, it may frankly even be very difficult for you to do that against your own citizens, even if you are so inclined. But the fact of the matter is, once the technology is deployed, uh, it can be used in many different ways. And I think this is one of the reasons why the U.S. government has been so uh, strong, uh, not just in Latin America, but worldwide, about the um, about Huawei, about ZTE, and about some of the other uh, Chinese uh, tele uh, technology companies because of the implications of what that could mean down the road. So my guest is Eric Farnsworth. He is the uh, vice president of the uh, Council of the Americas in Washington, D.C. We've been speaking about uh, China and its involvement in Latin America. When we return, Eric, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Washington, D.C. I want to talk about the United States, uh, what the U.S. is doing in response to um, increased Chinese involvement in Latin America and uh, what they are doing and what they should do. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Provcast, the regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. I'm managing editor Drew Griffin. We've been speaking with Eric Farnsworth, who is the vice president of the Council of the Americas in Washington, D.C., a, a thought leader, served in a number of different um, uh, administrations, given testimony uh, before Congress, and uh, is a, a specialist, you would say, in um, Latin American affairs. And it's a privilege to kind of talk to him. We're speaking mainly about his uh, uh, article recently in the America's Quarterly regarding um, Chinese involvement in Latin America it was entitled "What Why Washington is Worried and What It Should Do. So, uh, Eric, we've uh, talked a little bit about what China has been doing, um, how it got to this point, uh, the, the extent to which China is, is getting involved in Latin America and some of the ramifications behind that. Let's talk about Washington, right? Let's talk about the United States. Let's talk about U.S. policy. Um, tell us a little bit about how you view um, uh, the United States' response to this uh, increased uh, Chinese in involvement. Like, is there a um, there's been a, a tit-for-tat between, uh, you know, Rex Tillerson when he was Secretary of State in China, uh, Mike Pompeo, who's now Secretary of State in, in China. So talk a little bit about how the United States is rhetorically and practically um, engaging this, this Chinese involvement in Latin America. Well, I think the United States government has been seized by this issue recently uh, and, in fact, is making the uh, China's entrance into the Western Hemisphere a priority in terms of its own, uh, in other words, Washington's foreign policy uh, interests in the region. Um, 
I think you could make the case, uh, make the argument that in fact uh, Washington was slow uh, off the mark to recognize what was happening uh, in Latin America uh, and um, certainly uh, things like President Trump's uh, initial refusal to countenance the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP, um, set us back in the Western Hemisphere vis-a-vis uh, -vis China and, and frankly our own you know, economic interests across the region. But uh, we, we didn't recognize some of the impact of uh, China's interests into the region and so we're playing catch up. And now we're, we're moving forward uh, in many different ways. Uh, but we have to recognize that uh, we're dealing with sovereign countries who have their own interests, uh, who in some cases may be suspicious about U.S. interests and intent. And we talked about that a little bit earlier, um, you know, in terms of history and those sorts of issues. So it's not a perfect, uh, perfectly, you know, clear path forward. Um, I think the United States has to begin to make a case and, and, and continually make the case as to why the United States is a better or a, you know, a preferred partner for the Western Hemisphere than other countries, whether it be China or frankly Russia or somebody else, um, because of our values and our strengths as a people and, and the fact that we're not just interested in selling stuff to the region, but we're also interested in the regional development. And so it's our desire that uh, countries in Latin America actually develop into stronger democracies and stronger economies and are able to uh, go up the income scale and to provide for their people in a better way. Now, that's not always evident in terms of what U.S. policy has been. So I think we have to both be a better example and we, both ha and we have to recognize that uh, as, as well as a, real, um, as a real approach to the region. One thing that I don't think is terribly helpful, and you referenced Rex Tillerson, you know, before he went to Latin America uh, for his one trip there when he was Secretary of State, he gave a speech at the University of Texas, Austin, um, where he invoked the uh, Monroe Doctrine, which we all learned about in school is from 1823, and it essentially said that, you know, the United States would not countenance, uh, in this case, European powers uh, into the Western Hemisphere, um, and that we would stand for um, you know, independent sovereign states in Latin America against the uh, encroachment of outsiders. You know, the Monroe Doctrine has a certain history and uh, is not well perceived across Latin America. But even if it were, I mean, this is 1823 we're talking about, and today is 2019. Um, you know, we're not going to go back to 1823 or, or, or 1923. Um, we have to develop new approaches, and even if we wanted to put that genie back in the bottle, we couldn't. So I think, you know, talking to Latin Americans and basically saying, you know, you're not allowed to have relations with certain countries, that just not only does that fall on deaf ears, it just creates antibodies to the United States. And who are you to tell us who we can have relations with? I mean, you trade with China. Why can't we? And we hear that all of the time across Latin America. A better approach is not to be a scold and tell Latin American countries what they can or can't do, but to offer a reason why they would want to be partners with us. And I think that's what we've forgotten about somehow in Washington uh, on a bipartisan basis. This isn't a political comment. I mean, we have to recognize that we have a huge amount to offer Latin America, but we have to do it as opposed to saying, you know, we're only going to want to work with you if you do certain things for us, and meanwhile, we don't want you trading with other people. Um, that doesn't go over well in the Western Hemisphere. So President Trump began his um, uh, 
run for office in 2015, riding down the escalator, leads off. The first thing he talks about is immigration, right? It's it's the one topic. And as he's gearing up to run for re-election, it is immigration is again on the forefront. All politics is local. A huge amount of his base and his popularity seems to be uh, tied to, uh, uh, you know, his articulation of the uh, current um, immigration crisis, some of which is, is due to Venezuela and, and the collapsing state there. Uh, some of it is due to the withdrawal of uh, U.S. foreign aid to a lot of Latin American countries, um, which is done in a punitive way to punish them for not, you know, prohibiting um, uh, immigration across their their borders. Um, talk a little bit about the the cost benefit analysis that seems to have gripped Washington D.C. You know, particularly maybe the White House and how it's articulated, where it's like if it is, it's a very business mindset, right? And it seems to be very transactional. Uh, the president seems to operate this way that if, if it's, you know, putting more money in our coffers, it's great. If it's at all costing us, you know, and it seems to be out of balance, then um, let's eliminate the cost, you know, as much as possible. But there is an argument to be made, and I think you're making it uh, in your article, and I think it, it's been made by others, that this, is, these aren't, this isn't cost as much as it is investment, right? That we're investing in Latin America, investing in their security, in their stability. And so talk a little bit about how, that, how you see that cost-benefit analysis kind of playing out. Do you see a future there? Do you see it getting worse before it gets better? Uh, analyze domestic politics in relation to maybe how we're relating uh, internationally. Yeah, that's precisely right. You know, Washington, official Washington, looks at these issues primarily through a domestic lens. And that's natural in some ways because, obviously, you know, U.S. citizens vote and uh, folks who live abroad do not. Um, And so if you're looking to win elections, you're trying to uh, put this in the context of U.S. domestic politics, and I get that. Uh, But what we have failed to uh, recognize, perhaps, is that things that are done for domestic purposes uh, have uh, international implications. And, you know, you can get CNN or Fox or, or MSNBC or any... Uh, U.S. cable channel essentially anywhere in the world. So don't think for a minute that people in Latin America are not current on the U.S. political debate and don't hear the rhetoric that's being tossed around in, you know, studios in Washington, D.C. And when the the then candidate who turned into be the president of the United States launches his campaign by talking about rapists and murderers coming from Mexico, again, don't tell me that people in Mexico didn't hear that and haven't focused on that. So that does have some negative implications in terms of the willingness of countries to work together with the United States, the trust that is fundamental in order to promote a joint agenda with any country around the world, and just the goodwill that's really required to get countries, frankly, to do things that are in our interest, perhaps, which are politically difficult for them to do. I mean, look, if we want countries in Central America, for example, to work harder to keep their own citizens at home, which I think is probably in everybody's benefit, then it probably makes sense for us to help those countries to do so instead of vilifying them reducing aid and calling them names. I mean, it just doesn't seem to, you know, think about it in terms of dealing with your own family members. You know, if you want somebody to do something, then they're in your family, which in my view is, is kind of how Latin America is. Um, you know, you, you ask them to do things and you encourage them and you try to give them reasons why they should. I mean, you know, if you're yelling at them and calling them names, they're going to be a lot less inclined to do it. And sometimes they might do it because they have to and have no other choice, but they'll regret it. And over the long term, it's not going to go well. So the point is, you know, we need to look at these issues not just through a domestic lens, but through the international lens that they may be. To say nothing of, and you know, this is you know for the Providence audience and and for the 
um, you know, believers, you know, to say nothing of, you know, just the way we treat other human beings. Uh, you know, this matters. And, you know, in the international world, in the foreign policy world, we get all caught up in sovereign states and U.S. interests and all these things. But at the end of the day, we're talking about people here. And, you know, people have families, people have names, people have their own backgrounds and histories. And I think sometimes it behooves all of us to remember that um, and, to, and to have a different sort of approach uh, to, to some of these very, very difficult uh, issues that face us as a nation. Where do you see the um, uh, Chinese involvement going? And China has a, a very, uh, I mean, they are heading towards, you know, global hegemony. That's definitely their goal. That's their desire. Um, they're still lagging behind the United States, uh, you know, economically, but they're building up their kind of international presence, the military presence. Um, but they also have, you know, a number of, of weaknesses as, as a state, not least of which is the fact that they're, they're not a free state. It's a totalitarian regime uh, that's becoming increasingly repressive. Um, I mean, do you see um, China being able to overcome that and, and continue to build out, you know, um, throughout the, the, the global environment um, through investments and increase their strength? Or do you see at some point that the, uh, like a lot of empires, like a lot of um, hegemons, that they, they kind of begin to buckle under the weight of their own, you know, quote unquote success? Like, where do you see uh, China's, um, the prospects for China and Chinese involvement? Well, I don't see China as being able to supplant the United States, um, you know, certainly not on economic grounds at this point. But but even you know the idea of I mean at some point they might become a larger economy. But to be uh, to be the country that others aspire to, um, to have you know you use the word hegemony in the context of global affairs. Um, I don't think I would go that far. I think the contradictions, the internal contradictions of the Chinese system are uh, too profound to allow that to occur. But at the same time, you know, as an example, I'm not sure that much of the rest of the world, you know, wants to follow the Chinese model. They might want to diversify away from the United States, for example, but that doesn't mean they want to become acolytes of Beijing. Having said that, you know, we always, we, we've been talking in, in addition in this podcast and, and more broadly, we talk about China. Um, we got to remember here that, you know, it's not necessarily China we're talking about, but the Chinese Communist Party. Because the Chinese Communist Party is the entity that's, that's in government and is in control of China, and it's their vision that is being promoted. It's not necessarily a benign Chinese vision that... Uh, you know, just as a, a traditional sort of national vision. Uh, but this is a vision of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, and when you put it in that context, it has a little bit of a different implication in terms of global politics and the willingness of others perhaps to follow. So we've been speaking to Eric Farnsworth, uh, Vice President of the Council of the Americas. Um, you can follow him on Twitter, at Eric Farns, and you can read his uh, latest article, uh, Why Washington is Worried and What Should It Do in the America's Quarterly. Uh, Eric, thank you for your expertise and your time. Drew, it's great to be back. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Provcast, a regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. You can find us online at ProvidenceMag.com, follow us on Twitter at Prov Magazine, and download this podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.